Hello everyone, Brian Gottlieb here. And it's Hendel here. What's up everybody? I'm Amy. I'm Hank. And we're Goblin Reserve. I'm Matt Rogers, I'm from PCG. I'm Craig Kremples. James White here, listening to the Instant Speed Podcast. This is the Instant Speed Podcast. You're listening to the Instant Speed Podcast. Welcome to the Instant Speed Podcast. To welcome you to the Living Legend Podcast. Nope, wrong podcast. What's the name of your podcast, Flake? Not Arsenal Pass. You're listening to the Instant Speed Podcast. Easily the second best podcast for the Flesh and Blood game. Big shout out, hopefully Flakes found somebody other than me to be on it this time. Hit that like and subscribe button now. is the industry leader in both service and unique events in the TCG arena. Whether it's running the largest community-run tournaments for flesh and blood or providing service with a generosity that is unique to the Realm Games, you can count on the Realm for an unforgettable experience. Check out their website at realmgamingnetwork.com for details about their $50,000 flesh and blood tournament circuit happening all across North America. But check out everything else going on at the Realm, including tournaments for all kinds of other experiences. Experiences. And just for you, ISP listeners, use the code INSTANT5, that's I-N-S-T-A-N-T-5, to get 5% off your checkout when you're buying from the Realm. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 112 of the Instant Speed Podcast, brought to you by the Realm Gaming Network. You can use the code Haydendale, INSTANT5, at therealmgamingnetwork.com and get 5% off. Even for you Australians, it's unreal, dude. All over the world, you're getting 5% off. But I do want to welcome our guest this week, which is a co-host of Arsenal Pass, a multiple-time champion. Uh, Arsenal Pass, the podcast of the year, according to the Speedy Awards, which is, frankly, the most recognized and longest-running award show uh, in Flesh and Blood history. Did you know that, Hayden? I did know that actually. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, it's so thank you. It, frankly, next to all of your calling championships and everything else, that is probably I would imagine that that award is is up there on that mantelpiece. If you gave a physical award, it would be to my left hand side right now, next to my two trophies. Okay, perfect. That's what I thought. But either way, the always all around sturdy Hayden Dale is joining us this week. Hayden, welcome back, my friend. Thank you for having me on. It's good to good to be back on the pod. It is good to be ha- be back in general. I think uh, I just came back from Hartford and uh, one hell of a drive, but what great great event altogether. Before we get to Flush and Blood, I do want to do a little business, as it were, and announce the winner of last week's giveaway. I said every week we're doing a giveaway of ten dollars of store credit from the Realm Games, and the winner. I asked you. I said in the comments, tell me. Who's your favorite hero coming out of heavy hitters? And the winner, picked randomly, is Kafgar saying, I played Kasai at my pre-release. She's my babe. So Kafgar, you need to email me at instantspeedpodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Discord and say, hey, I won. And I will get you your code for $10 of store credit at the Realm Games. But you have to call me. That's how it works. 
All right, deal. All right, Hayden. So let's talk a little bit about heavy hitters and the impression, the earliest impressions, because we got to now have it from a um, classic constructed capacity, lots of limited out there as well. But I think a lot of people are excited for the set, but in Hartford, it was a very interesting I guess, uh, reality when, frankly, these SCG cons, which are typically magic events, let's just be real here, it was, at first I thought, okay, it's a 60-40 split of flesh and blood players to magic players. But when I was sort of walking around the venue, I noticed that, okay, this whole column or two columns of tables, these are all Pokemon players. This, These two or three mm. columns of tables are all Lorcana players. And then there's this quarter of the venue is the magic events. Whereas this whole side of the convention center is all flesh and blood. So it wasn't a 60, 40 split uh, of magic or a flesh and blood to magic. It was a 50, 50 split of flesh and blood to frankly, everything else, which is unreal. And I want to ask you your impressions early on about heavy hitters. And I suppose where flesh and blood can be now within the grander conversation of, of you know just tcgs and and its presence within the space uh, i mean there's a lot to unpack i think heavy hitters is the best set so far for flesh and blood I, I, that's my it's my it's my opinion that's that's my feeling so far after playing limited over the last few weeks of heavy hitters and starting to play some class constructed i think from a limited standpoint purely i think it's it's one that alexis have kind of it, it feels like they're like their ascendancy like you're kind of talking about right in terms of where are they now? Where what does the future hold? And I think heavy hitters is you know you're seeing players returning. For instance, I know shout out to Rob Seigel. I know he was yeah. there at the uh, the calling half of this weekend. You're seeing returning players who maybe stepped away from the game for for a certain point. And I, I think heavy hitters is bringing people back because it's it's an interesting uh, proposition in terms of the the gameplay, the uh, the dichotomy of of draft. I've really been enjoying draft. I'm about six or seven drafts in now, and I think every hero feels interesting. It feels unique for the most part. Um, so I, I think you know this isn't this is one set, right? I think now the the task for LSS and and for the team there is to to go and knock it out knock it out of the park a second time in a row. And I think you know that that will do a lot of work for bringing both new players, returning players, and keeping people ingrained in, in Flesh and Blood, especially in Limited, which, let's be honest, right, has had a really rocky past. It's not been everyone's favorite format. There's been a, a lot of people who have disliked Limited, have only played Flesh and Blood for Constructed. And then even those players who enjoy Limited and play Limited have had criticisms in the past. But I think, for the most part, Heavy Hitters is kind of, you know, it's kind of nailing it so far. Yeah, you're right about that. I think that Limited, from the past few set perspectives, I mean, Outsiders was intriguing. It was great. But even some people said it's like, it was good, but it's not quite there yet. It's still lacking something. And when it came to Limited, Heavy Hitters comes in, and it is such a phenomenal experience. Um, And there is, and I've asked Brian this, but at the same time, I want to ask you, and I've asked the you know the sentiment of the community at the same time is that is this kind of was heavy hitters almost like a rescue like a just of the limited experience in flesh and blood because bright lights was something that may have appealed to some but I wasn't a fan of the limited experience I don't think many people were big fans of it ultimately mm-hmm. after getting their hands on it but you're eight or nine drafts in you're several sealed pools in etc is this the set that kind of rescues limited for flesh and blood yeah i i i think so honestly and i know you know i'm sure brian would have had a different answer (laughs) but i kind of agree i think 
Outsiders as a limited set, I, I had hope for, and I think it, it looked good on the surface and started to seed some of the things that we're seeing in heavy hitters pay off. You know, I think about the hybrid class cards, for instance. Uh, I think about the six hero format. But ultimately, the replayability of that format was pretty low, I think, and there were some issues that I don't think had been tested internally. Maybe there's too much balancing for Constructed that didn't offset some of the limited aspects and problems. Um, the seal format was you know, pretty poor, honestly. It really felt like you could only play two heroes. Uh, and then, you know, I think fast forward to Bright Lights, and I think they try something completely different, something really unique, but ultimately I don't think it really comes off. I don't think that limited experience is, is particularly great. I think it's very, you know, it, fortunately with a single class, it is quite low on the dimensions, I think. And I think we needed a limited set that really captured people's you know want and desire to actually play some limited to give replayability to to give dichotomies within the the draft itself the sealed building experience the gameplay um all three of those things and previously i think some sets had delivered little bits of aspects of each of those but i think yeah heavy hitters was 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 really needed i think to pump some life into limited so clean and clear just black and white yes or no is this the yes, best yes well i was gonna say no but i, I mean oh. like just for the setup for the future one i no no i love I love elaborate and detailed yes. answers, please. Yes. No, this is – I'm not definitely – no, I appreciate it when my guest actually explains and gets into the weeds. Whatever the it. question is, Flake, the answer is yes. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, now the question has changed, so <laughs> – Oh, never mind. The question is now, will I be the best man at your wedding? And that's phenomenal, so thank you so much for that. Um, the question it was actually going to be, is this the, the inherently the best limited set experience in Flesh and Blood? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear as well. I think people will point to Welcome to Wraith and say, you know, Welcome to Wraith's pretty close. I remember, and I'm going to single out Mr. Matt Rogers, because Matt Rogers at one point said Monarch is the best limited experience he's had. And then I want to ask him now that he revisited that for national season, does he still feel that way? Because that set is not that enjoyable after <laughs> drafting it 50 times. Um, but you know what? I think ask me again when I've done 50, 100 drafts of, of this set. I have a feeling I'm just going to say the same thing that yes, it, it, it just is. It just is the best experience so far. Awesome. Um, we could talk a little bit about the fact that there was a, an interview recently uh, featuring the the sort of the grander scheme of, of flesh and blood. This is a bigger co conversation, and I don't want to rope you into it too detailed. But the the interview that uh, James had with I believe it was um, a local to New Zealand news outlet where they mm -hmm. were talking about the future of the game and the success of the game and um, I just want to get a brief comment on you because there's a lot of people and, and obviously there's going to be biases regarding where you are and what the scene is locally. A, a game that has own, no digital client that is very um, dependent on whatever local scene there is. If it's dead where you're at, you are basically going to say that the game is dead. But something along the lines of 30% player growth over the past year, all kinds of, you know, no debt, profit, a bit, you know, all kinds of room for growth. What is your outlook of where flesh and blood is right now as a game within this the grander scheme of all card games the big three being you know Yu-Gi-Oh, pokemon magic those are untouchable and the, but the thing is is i don't think that you know if you asked me last week does flesh and blood or james white give it give a crap about those cards and and challenging them i would say no i think that they were content just doing what they did but the fact is is that I don't know if you've seen this interview, but they're like, yeah, they're like, we're looking to push 
a billion dollars of revenue. That's what that's the goal. And right now they're between 50 and 75 million. They they need easily 10 to 15 times like over 10 to about 15 times more revenue to make that happen. And that seems absolutely absurd to me. But what is your opinion of where this game stands? And I guess the follow up to that is, do you think they have a shot at cracking that top three? Yeah, this interview, it's, it's by the New Zealand, New Zealand Herald. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a finance focused interview, I would say from, you know, the, the, the interviewer is someone who is running a, a, I guess, a column or a show that is finance and investment and this sort of focus related business related. But I think James's passion still comes through for the game so much, which is awesome in terms of my, my feeling is that yes, that this flesh and blood can really challenge the big three. I think over the next five years, I didn't necessarily feel this way. 18 months ago to be honest and i think one one of the things that's really instilled the kind of um the confidence in me is actually the fact that they're running this like a proper business operation you know they've really focused in on on what this means to to them to be a business and to be a, a profitable uh, a sustaining business because i think if you've ever known and, and no disrespect to you know um card store owners i think there's a there's a great number of, of card store or LGS owners who are fantastic business people, but a lot of people don't get into it for that reason, right? They get into it to open a store and run a game store and hang out with their friends or whatever it is. And I think that can be the same when people build games. But I think clearly what LSS are going after when it comes to building a, a dynasty and building a product uh, that is going to stay around for a long time, excite, inspire, get people to the table, um, is also business focused, not just purely passion focused. And I think that's honestly a great mix. And that's something that gives me a lot of confidence for the game. So I think that they've got, you know, a, a billion dollars. That's obviously a lofty target in terms of revenue. And that means a lot more players or, you know, it means a lot of different business practices. Hopefully what it actually means is just, just growth of the game. They'll keep this organic feeling of what it means to be playing in the flesh and blood, to be a tabletop game, to be player led and focused uh, and, and build through growth markets you know i know james in that interview talks about japan he talks about south america um these growth markets are what's going to be the next stage in, in growing flesh and blood so um yeah I, I think it's in a i think the game honestly like i say if you asked me 18 months ago i might have felt the same way even 12 months ago but i think the game is clearly in a good spot from a health perspective um and also just from what's happening in the game right now and yeah i think that the term just one billion dollars is just kind of like you know, it, it, I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it's just you're Throw not. Away. Yeah, you're not going to say, well, our goal is a six hundred and fifty million dollars. Like you just say, you throw a billion dollars out there just to like as a placeholder for saying we 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 dream big because frankly if their goal is a billion dollars the first move they would do in my opinion is like let's throw these things on the shelves at like walmarts and stuff like that yep. makes that that would that's where you basically uplift that like put it at into amazon and sell the crap out of it but you know, at the same time, you have to maintain integrity. Again, that's a conversation uh, for another day. I want to talk. Did you see? Yeah. Did you see James's little pinky come up as you said one billion dollars? <laughs> that is. Uh, listen, I was literally thinking about that, Hayden, because in my mind, I was. I'm like, he needs to come up with a term and or a number figure for this interview, and I'm sure he has no clue what is feasible but also lofty enough yeah so he does the our goal is one billion dollars and she's like yeah okay no problem like you know like that tesla does that in on a saturday like it's no big yeah, deal yeah, yeah. but for a card game company like flesh and blood looking to challenge that these massive titans it's no big deal but i think that what you take away from that interview is not necessarily that they have this lofty financial goal it's that they have lofty goals 
mm. in general. And I think that's a good thing, that the passion hasn't fizzled out. They're not cruising and saying, you know, we're making $75 million of revenue a year. You know, that, that when 10 years ago when I was designing this game in my basement, that was a, a pipe dream and an absolute fantasy land. And now that's the reality. I think it's merely a fact that our passion is still there to grow. And that's what I'm taking mm. away from that. Um, let's talk about the brute class and the brute ascension is you yourself are very well positioned as a lot of experience, a lot of success with that class. Where is the brute class currently? With heavy hitters? Well, with the release of heavy hitters and, and sort of this first Hartford, I mean, I had an interesting, I, I played in some side events. Uh, I got smacked around by a KO on mm. Bravo and then, you know, trying to fatigue it. And then I played against another KO and my opportunity there was I'm going to trade with opportunity and I beat the crap out of that KO uh, in that regard. There was a, you know, a couple bad dice rolls or reveals or discards here and there. And that's the topic of today's discussion ultimately <laughs> is going to be variants. But where is the class after heavy, heavy hitters? I'm missing the best place it's ever been for sure. Certainly, I think Brute has always... I think since Crucible of War, so we're going back to the really early days, the first, you know, 18, 24 months of Flesh and Blood, um, Brute has not been in a good position when it comes to Class Constructed. Uh, and obviously, you know, Brute has had some su success. You look at Chandler Toe winning uh, the calling, the biggest calling in, in um, at Worlds in 2022, for instance, on Reiner. So it's not like there's never been any success for for... Uh, the green machines, right? But it's it's not been in a particularly great spot. It's It's been a, a class that's struggled. And I think with heavy hitters coming in, I wouldn't say, you know, people throw around the term like the range of treatment, you know, like we had an outsiders for for Lexi and Azalea. And I don't, I don't think it's to that level, but I think that's been some learnings from Alice's side in terms of power level of cards and, and class structure. But in saying that, I mean, obviously... Yuki on KO took down the the battle hardened in the weekend. That's that's one event to start in a new format. Is that an indication of the strength of the class? I, th I think a little bit. I think KO is clearly being given the tools to be a value orientated player in the game, and that's not something Brute is necessarily happy for. It's had to rely on other factors, and that gives it automatically a contender in terms of the the top at least third of the field when it comes to class constructed. So I think the printing of, of KO as a, as a hero, along with, um, so, you know, agility tokens in particular, I think has put Brute into a much better, you know, sphere of, of playability and competitiveness than it's ever been before. Well, you talk about the strength of Brute, or like, you know, the fact that KO won the uh, Battle Hardened in Hartford, you know, it's the strength mm -hmm. of... KO or the strength of brute. I would argue it's the strength of Yuki Lee Bender. Frankly, well, I mean, and I know that you're not trying to disparage or, or sort of lessen the or her uh, you know involvement mm -hmm. in that win, but she took out Majin Bay uh, in, in on Kano, which in itself was a story. I was there. I spent the entire weekend shared a uh, an Airbnb with Majin Bay, and you know, there's no more roller coaster ride than he had that weekend but that's a whole other story ultimately <laughs> the fact that ko was so prominent we saw ko be almost like the de facto choice within um limited be it sealed uh mm -hmm. ko is always kind of bubbling to the top it's a very strong hero doesn't need too many moving parts to really get the job done it was always in the driver's seat uh in terms of draft you know, it's an easy way to pick up from a draft perspective uh, over Reinar. But now in Constructed, everybody was kind of thinking, okay, is 
Is it Leviya that's going to get the benefit here from Classic Constructed? Mm. Is Reinar actually going to come out and start swinging for the, you know, swinging for the fences? Or I'm going to ask you, Hayden, is KO the brute setting the tone now for the class? Yeah, I, I think just just quickly on that as well. I, I mean, Yuki's had a phenomenal last 12 months, by the way. And I think if you know, I, I think you did award... It's just be did award Yuki Player of the Year, right? My, my, uh, it was right? Michael Fang. Uh, she was Michael a finalist, though, right. I believe. Yeah. All right. Well, my personal Player of the Year was was Yuki Lee Bender. There you go. Um, but also, <laughs> yeah. Nia Tran also um, made top eight with the same list, right? Of the Battle Hardened. Yes, the weekend, he so. lost. He lost uh, to Margin. I watched that game. He yeah. played magnificently. Yeah, good player, great player. So you know, uh, but also I think, yeah, to your point, to your question, Ko is this kind of—it's a baseline. I think it, it gives an entryway into um, brute being able to to be the kind of. I think Ko is the default best brute to start. I just think numbers wise, value wise, and just traditional flesh and blood aspects. You know, um, card value, for instance. I think Ko has to kind of be the the default to start. Um, Cast bones is a heck of a card, and I think that card's only really playable in in Ko. I think so. I think Ko has these tools to come in and immediately be a, a tier one to tier two contender immediately. In terms of the other brutes and kind of where they sit alongside Ko, I think. A lot of hype was initially for Leviathan, right? Because it was, it was, it's always so close. It's always like, you know, if you go and talk to uh, Ethan and his League of Leviathan, right? It's like it's almost there. It's always almost there. But um, you know, and agility tokens this time, right? Newness and something exciting for Leviathan. But I still, I still think Leviathan suffers from all the, the classic issues that it has previously. I don't think anything changes this really, to be honest. And I think, I think it's the worst brute of the three now in, wow. in Classic Constructed. I think Reinar and Ko are pretty close in terms of fighting that out for who's going to have the next um, impact on on the Classic Constructed meta, at least from a brute perspective. Will that be long-term? Not sure. But I think Ko probably edges it out because just the, the overall value, I think any given meta, I think Ko is going to be able to perform. I think Reinar is going to need some more specific um, help when it comes to meta considerations. So Leviathan actually kind of falling to the bottom of this little mini power rankings we got here. And I was going to ask you where Reinar, so. where Reinar sits. Um, so if Reinar's kind of in the middle of this brute mm -hmm. sandwich, how are the, is Reinar closer to Leviar or closer to Ko? Closer to Ko. I, th I think Reinar's actually is pretty good. I just think it's going to be a little bit meta dependent on whether you want to wheel out Reinar. And it always has been, right? Because Intimidate is such a powerful mechanic. And I think it's, I honestly think Intimidate is looking better than it has previously in a lot of formats i think we're we're seeing this kind of ascension of like a lot of mid-range strategies there's no there's no true aggro bad guy in the format right now you know i think you look at how many ninjas showed up in in hartford and obviously this is week one of the format things can change and that's why i kind of caveat that of like reinard meta dependent but there's no one true big bad aggro out there at the moment and that's a good thing for reinard because that means intimidate is more powerful when people want to trade value with you or they want to two card block and play cards back so um yeah i i think reinard's in a better spot than it's ever been and i i think intimidates in a better spot than it's ever been wouldn't you say that ko would be that that bad guy in terms of the field i mean there's always phi that's still sort of floating about but wouldn't you say that ko is is sort of taking that mantle of the aggro bad guy I'm not sure K is really an aggro deck, to be honest. I think you can have these aggressive explosive hands, you know, and do it fairly consistently. But I think, you know, things like Wild Ride, Pulping, et cetera, if you're going to play those. But they're not, you know, it's that the more you lean into that piece of it. So I think about like the Berserk builds we saw early on with KO. Those are more susceptible to disruption, I think. 
And I, I think the better builds are the ones like we saw Yuki and, and Nia play, which are these more value orientated. You play a lot more three blocks. You play very minimal sort of go wide aspects and you just play on pure value and you, you use cast bones for what it's worth, which is just an insane amount. And not to say that, yeah, KO can't push damage, but it, it's not, you know, it's not uh, 35 damage out of war turns or, you know, crazy mask of the pouncing links sort of turns, things like that. So channel Mount Rock, for instance. I feel you. I feel you. All right. Well, that's a, a very good snapshot, at least at the early onset of what Brute looks like post-heavy hitters. And I'm a little surprised, I'm not going to lie, about the fact that Levi's at the bottom, because I think that a lot of people are saying that she was she won out of this set from the Brute perspective. But I trust your judgment, my friend. I, <laughs> that's I, how I see it. I'm open to being wrong. But so far, I, I think that's how, how my testing shaking out and what I'm seeing. Hey, that's that's the best way to be. And this, I, listen, if you're listening to this, friends, do what Hayden Dale does. Be open to being wrong. You could be confident, but if you're not open to being wrong, you'll never progress. That's just a true fact. All right. So the whole reason I'm bringing you in is to discuss variance because variance is such a boogeyman when it comes to this discussion of card games, etc. A lot of people don't even know what the hell variance is. And I have my own you know, idea of what variance is. Everybody has their own description or otherwise uh definition of what it was i'm gonna give you um hayden the description that comes actually from magic the gathering and magic the gathering uh ha is you know one of the oldest tcgs and from magic the gathering's website itself it defines variance as variance is how different a gameplay element plays out from one play experience to the next. We can think of variance as a scale. If that element has a high variance, it has the potential to play differently each time it's played. If that element has low variance, it will play similarly each time it's played. And in my estimation, when it comes to Flesh and Blood, Flesh and Blood is an extremely low variance game. It has a variance class, which you're very well um, aware of, which is Brute, because Brute is a lot of random discards and dice rolling. However, from the the onset of everything, m for the most part, it is a low to minimal, almost no variance game. And some might argue, and this is where I want your opinion. First of all, actually, give us. Do you agree with that assessment of variance? Uh, of what variance is? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a pretty a pretty encapsulating answer. Do you have any add-ons or do you have your own particular description that you'd like to sort of give or def definition of what variance is? No, I, I think, you know, the example you used talks about a scale and I, I like to think of variance as a scale as well. You know, it's like, where does this game or this element or piece of something fit between, say, chess and a slot machine? And I think that's, you know, I think a scale is a good way to look at it. Perfect. And I, I appreciate that as well. What I think I want a lot of people to understand and just immediately flush down the toilet because it's garbage is if you consider drawing off the top of your deck each turn variance, you do not understand what variance is. I think that that is an important part because everybody says, well, all card games are random uh, and have variance because you're shuffling the deck. Well, that inherently is true, but that is just that it's kind of like a fact where it's all it's it, it it you everybody comes in with that reality it's like saying well we're both playing on a table it's an equal element you know we're both playing with this within the same climate of this convention center that those variables are equal for both of us but when it comes to variance you're rolling dice i'm not you're rolling scabs since i'm not you're 
discarding a card from hand at random to either improve or um, a play or to that play's detriment, you know? Like, I feel like variance has to be something that is targeted to one, sp one specific play, which I guess that's what is being described here in, in the de definition that magic is giving. Yeah, it's... I kind of... I actually kind of disagree a little bit, to be honest. And I, I think that's mo mostly, honestly, it's about the fact that, you know, I, I think you're right. If there's if there's a an asymmetrical effect that's happening, right? That's not, you know, it's not really variance, right? You say drawing a card. But the, the order of your deck in the first cycle can hold variance, right? Like use the example of you're at the convention center and if you're both sat at a table, you know, you're on equal footing. But let's say I'm sat above the air conditioning unit and it's freezing in there and I'm getting blasted by the air conditioning unit. My opponent sat across the table and they're out of the way of the air conditioning unit. I would say variance has kind of smacked me in the face when it came to where I got paired for that round. That's, <laughs> you know that's I mean? very fair. We're actually going to get to that later. But yeah, no, that is a very, very fair point. Um, uh, but... Yeah, I I, th I think I think there's I have this I think when it comes to variance in flesh and blood, there is obvious variance. There is these big pieces of variance like you talk about my scabskin leathers, my draw and discard off my wild ride. Um, you know the the clash right is a is a huge new variance mechanic which. I'm sure you can ask me what I think of that mechanic, but um, then there's also these other, there's these smaller, uh, less, the more nuanced, less kind of obvious or observed or less spoken about moments of variance through games of flesh and blood, uh, you know, and I think first cycle of a deck, second cycle of a deck is is no variance, right? You, like, you get to pitch that exactly how the order you want it, um, the only, only variance would be how your opponent interacts with that or potentially how you're forced to do something in a game state, but you're never really forced to do anything. That's just, it's kind of an illusion, right? So that second cycle is pure, pure non-variance, whereas first cycle is to an extent quite a lot of variance. Obviously there's deck building elements, there's things like that, but the, the how the cards line up, you know, if I rip CNC Pommel off the first 12 cards in my deck perfectly with two blues every time, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, I do believe that at the same time, and you're right, because on second cycle, if you're tracking your pitch, the variance is, is relatively null and void because you know what you're getting. Um, should you should your opponent shuffle your deck for you or create an effect that forces you to shuffle your deck? Well, then that kind of goes all up the window. The, the, the whole point of the air conditioning and where you're sitting, I, I totally get that. And there was actually a question we're going to jump to from uh, Pat sure. Shaw, who basically says... There's card variance, but I'd be interesting to hear uh, your thoughts, Hayden, on the variance that is inherent to a big tournament itself, how you might navigate those things such, that might pop up, such as, you know, unexpected matchups, uh, your deck not drawing well, things outside of your control. And you just gave a great example, which is, what if I'm, and this happened to me, not, I wasn't as badly affected, but I was paired up at the calling on day one, and... I'm at a table where the, the one of the massive speakers where the judges are basically calling stuff in was at the end of that table. The dude at the and I was like ten dudes deep past that speaker, and my eardrums were getting blasted, and it was so horrifically sh like turbulent. <laughs> it just like it shook the table. the The people who were closer to it. I don't know how they survived because it wasn't like they were calling, okay, you may begin, and then 50 minutes of silence. It was, Lorcana people, get ready for this, and Magic's, you know, modern 10K, go here. And if you're, we're looking for what, every five minutes, there was this deafening blast, this sonic boom. And that person, I, I don't know how any of them uh, at closer to the, could, 
could even concentrate because when it's not blasting your eardrums, you're almost living in fear of the next time it would get nailed into your eardrums. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, like, how do you deal with that as uh, an additional sort of element of environmental variance to a degree? That's a good question. I, I'm a comfort person. Like, I really, I really cultivate the the sittings that I like to be in, right, for, for my maximum comfort, so to speak. So, you know, uh, when it comes to, I don't know, my office at home, for instance, I like to have my desk set up how it is. I like the chair to be comfortable. You know, I'm in the car. I like to have the air conditioning the way I want it, for instance. I prep the clothes I'm going to wear on a day based on the weather, so I make sure I'm going to be comfortable and not uncomfortable. So I do struggle a little bit with environmental factors sometimes when it comes to these events because, let's be honest, right, you you go into an event you've never been to before and it's a card gaming event. You toss up what you're going to get. It could be too hot, could be too cold, could be too loud, could be you know it could be all these things and it is really difficult i think when it comes to environmental factors i I think the best advice i can give is prep as much as possible so you know uh, pat asked about the matchups for instance we'll be prepared for every matchup right that's the way to to avoid the unexpected um go it's you know let's say it's you know, it's cold outside, but it could be hot in the venue. Well, I'll take layers, right? I'll take, rather than just wearing a base layer that's a heavy knit or something, I'll wear a t-shirt under a, a piece of knitwear under a jacket or whatever so I can have, have the layers to take off. Um, I'll make sure, maybe there's no food at the venue. Oh, I didn't bring food with me. My prep is I'll bring food with me so to make sure I'm not going to go hungry. at the. You know, I think it, as much as you can do, just, just try and get ahead of things. Try and uh, be prepared for the variance that's going to try and kick you in the butt when you get to the venue. <laughs> and that's a very, that's, you're right about that. And it's crazy because you think about it from the perspective of, okay, uh, I'm playing Bravo. I need to get X amount of reps into Lexi, X amount of reps into Icelander, X amount of, and when you do, get into those scenarios where like, I've been here. I know how to deal with this. I'm prepared mm-hmm. for it. Because you've been there. You've, you've, you've had the reps. You've had the experience. You're not going to get caught, get caught uh, uh, off guard when an opponent makes a play against you. You know the best way for you to deal with it. It's the same thing with these tournaments. It's the same way. Like, you know, where are we staying? How far is it? What's the, like, the, the Uber length to get to the place? How soon do I need to be there? Like, these are all things that you get with experience. And much like within the game, the way that you sort of navigate through these scenarios is by relying on your previous experiences, and it's the same way. So like you said, pack some food, pack layers, get, you know, know these things in advance. And you're right, because it does help you in that case. Like I've played a tournament where exactly like you said, it is hot outside and cold in the venue, and I show up at a t-shirt and I'm absolutely miserable in the venue it's like now i know i absolutely know i don't care how hot it is outside i have a sweater in my bag because Mm -hmm. the inside might be um you know a meat locker um ultimately though pat i think that there are just certain things that like the variance quote unquote of these elements like your opponent well your opponent you can't review tape of everybody who's playing at a particular event but you can practice against the the heroes that they're playing against same thing like you mentioned about everything else so would you say that preparation and repetition is your best defense against the you know variables and variants that you have no control against 100 percent. i mean there's there's uh, you take one or however many things you want to take there's different variables to every aspect of something right so let's take matchups for instance you know how many variables are there to the matchups you're going to play 
the the iteration of how you draw the first cycle of your deck that is something that has a lot more variables and is a lot harder to control right but the ones that you can control and the ones you can prepare for you know if you invest your your time if you rank those which ones are more important more impactful you can you can invest your time in the right ways let's say you know i mean we're up to like 20 something heroes right in, in class constructed but if you say okay these are the 10 heroes i care about the most to get my reps in and then these other 10 i'm just gonna spend 15 minutes thinking about how i would play i'll send a message to a friend who's a, a specialist in this hero and how would you play this matchup if you had to play if you do if you were me on the other side of it i'm gonna go into the, the purple discord and be like look at the you know how people are playing this matchup whatever 15 minutes or even 10 or five or whatever. But I think all the variables that you can at least attribute for and, and prepare for, you're going to be able to set yourself up for some success. Um, and then others, the ones that are that are so vast, the ones that you can't control as much of or you can't prepare for, then the only thing you can really do is in the moment not get tilted by it and and just be ready to, to react in a way that's going to be more favorable for you. Yeah. The not get tilted by it part is hard to navigate and i think that to a degree i've become immune to it because of repetition of legitimately the fact that i have been there so many times that i understand that yeah it was a one in a hundred situation or like there was one card in their deck that they could have revealed off the top to beat me and that would happen to be it everybody has a story like that um i remember i made a Gwent video ages ago, like four or five years ago, where I lost a game to, I did the math, it was a one in like 76,000 odds thing. It was like, it was unreal how that happened. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I'm like, I'm not mad at that this happened. I just want to show you how ridiculous it was, how I lost this game. But at the same time, you understand that, you know, when a game that is being played a hundred thousand times a day, something like this with those types yeah, of odds exactly. is going to happen. And I'm immune to it because I've played thousands and thousands and thousands of card games and not like titles, but just actual games. So I've been on the receiving end of bad luck and I've been on the winning end of crazy anomalies in variants that have pulled me out of the gutter to win a game. Both are just as spectacular. It just so happens that there's going to be somebody who's happy about it and somebody's unhappy about it. And frankly, I'm now at the point where when I'm on the receiving end, I'm just glad that I was part of that story. That, hey, I was here for this very unrealistic circumstance that now you have a good memory for. And it's mm -hmm. like I beat Flake by, you know doing this random crazy thing that was just so cool. And I'm like, yeah, it is cool. And I think that just sort of part of variance is is just that. It's that it's out of your hands, right, Hayden? And there's nothing that you can necessarily do. You're kind of at a Jesus take the wheel kind of situation. But maybe before we get into heavy hitters and the clash mechanic, do you have advice that you can give people when it comes to being at the mercy of, and the just the brutality sometimes of how variants can just slap you around. I think it's just think that it's going to be in a game, right? Generally, it's going to be a moment in a game where something happens that you know it's the one in seventy six thousand, like you say, or seven hundred seventy six thousand, like you say. You know, the, this thing that in the moment just feels so disparaging, or it's like, how you know, what is this? This you know, I drew all three of my power red card in my opening hand and i'm forced to block with it like that's just never happens it does happen and i think it's just a moment in time right and it's like the i think the thing i always think about is the fact that like after this game there's another game whether it's at this event today or it's an event next week or you know it's next year's worlds whatever it is i i think the kind of way i try and encapsulate it to myself is like there is another game to be played and 
this happened to me but also i think sometimes to try and balance it out i just think back to the rest of the event or another game and i go like yeah but remember the other day when i got the good side of the variance when i just absolutely ripped that you know that double six and to intimidate my opponents only to block cards so they're left with two non-block cards to perfectly win the game um i think that's kind of the the things that i could sort of try and balance myself out to you know avoid that tilt you know just just realize that this is not you know it's not just me this isn't only happening to me sort of thing uh, it was it like uh, even this past weekend i was playing bravo and, and into that ko i was talking about i was like maybe it is variance it's like okay i was able on when you whiffed on that wild ride i was able to take six damage dominate a crippling crush the turn mm -hmm. after that i was able to like oh it just so happened my tunic was up to three and i had another crippling crush two blues and a yellow i was able to dominate it with the tunic for another dominated crippling like it was just one of those things it's like it it all lines up that way i watched you at worlds within blitz get absolutely brutalized right and yeah. when we're talking about variance that opening hand variance of that player being able to just you, there's nothing you can do, but you took it like a champion. You understood that at a certain degree, you dish it out, and if you dish it out and celebrate, you better be able to take it just as just as happily to a degree, I suppose. <laughs> but that's that's where we're at, and and it's it's a tough go. I, when we was I was in Hartford, somebody came up to me and mentioned about how like like I had like the worst worst possible luck. I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, I'm playing Dromai. My opening hand was three sand covers and a fate for scene. And my follow-up hand was uh, a fate for scene and three sink belows. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty garbage. I said, did you shuffle? I absolutely shuffled. They, I shuffled, <laughs> they shuffled, and it just so happens that that's how the cards fell. And that's never going to happen to this player again. But it just, unfortunately, given the stakes, sometimes it adds a really nasty spotlight on a blemish on what was otherwise a really great time in the in the grand scheme of things is like you said you know when i think about this that bravo those chaining those bravo turns together that's i'm like that's how it's supposed to go so i'm not overjoyed because in my mind that is the ideal you just get really upset and saddened about these negative variance experiences mm -hmm. so yeah I, I just want to recommend to everybody that hey like the more you play the more these things balance out and it just sucks when it happens to you at, at a inopportune time you know I, I think there's one reflection i think you can take away from that though and this is something that i i like to do in this game is that the extreme of a case can really highlight what the average might end up being so let's take your uh your fan that came up and talked about the uh the sand covers and the fate for scenes and the sink belows i'm calling them a fan i don't know if they're a fan of this big podcast maybe they're not maybe they just wanted to complain to someone for like I yeah don't know. it's possible <laughs> i get a lot of that <laughs> Uh, we, have a, we have a joke on Arsenal Pass, you know, it's like, come up and say hi to us and have a chat to us, but leave your bad beat stories at the door. <laughs> All the time. That, look, I love everybody and I will always have people the time for people to talk to me. But one thing is, is if you hand me your draft deck and say, take a look at this deck, I will look through it and, and say, dude, that's awesome. And not actually really evaluate i'm sorry because I don't know the context. I don't know what's good. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's like it's we're playing. We're playing pick up 52 if you hand me that draft. No, <laughs> don't do it. Don't. That's, I want to see. <laughs> no, I want to see the story of I gave my draft deck to Hayden Dale and he threw it in the in like three different garbage cans. <laughs> I think I did that to Sam Burns draft deck because it was so bad. I just told him to 03 drop and go home. But uh, <laughs> no. So one of the things I take away, I think, is like the extreme variance. So, you know, you draw your 12 defensive cards in your first four hands, right? Okay. I think one of the things I take from that is like 
that's do i have too many defensive cards in my deck like is this is there actually like is this this is an extreme case yes sure but like is this a symptom of something or is this an indication of something that could happen in a smaller variance uh aspect or in a smaller bubble that could impact my games in the future because i know how important ash generation is and making dragons and board presences if i'm playing dromai so i think when i'm testing and i have these kind of like spikes of variance it makes me think sit back and go like okay like let's just take reinar and rolling scabskin leathers i got into a position where i had to roll scabskin leathers three times in a game like how did that happen like yes i rolled one three times i'm so unlucky but like how how did we get to that point where that that was that was necessary so trying to reflect back on these these big spikes of variance and what it actually means to to kind of try to extrapolate that to wider samples like uh, uh, one thing that i i kind of lean on is the fact that i have played the ultimate casino game of all time which is i played mage in hearthstone okay like that is essentially <laughs> as casino slot machine as it possibly gets they design cards for degenerates like me who are too cowardly to go to the casino they they basically print cards that are like spend 20 mana worth of random spells and hurrah have a seat let's go and i've attained high ranks i've been like diamond five close to legend with the most ridiculous nonsense because of the fact that hey variance is cool and i don't really care but it, that was just me like the, the i have played true high variance card games of like discover a card play a random spell blah 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 it's a one in there's like a pool of a hundred cards that you could possibly go from 30 percent of them are beneficial 30% are neutral, and 40% of them are going to kick you in the ass. It's like, roll the dice, yippee ki let's go. Flesh and Blood is a game, in my opinion, that has a certain amount of... You can tailor a little bit of that variance. You can kind of uh, bend the odds. It's it's sort of the illusion of variance to a degree. And this is the way where it's like a, a well-tailored, especially now, a well-tailored brute deck that is looking to discard cards. It, it, the whiffs are almost are almost impossible if you're playing it correctly if you're tailoring things maybe there's an off the top that might help like might hurt you because there's a five percent chance but for the most part variants in flesh and blood can be insulated and protected to a degree for for favorable outcomes and i want to ask you about clash specifically mm -hmm. because i feel like clash might be the first true instance of let's just let's do it because there's very few cards that are playable or that make it into cc meta that are looking at the top card reliably uh there's opt obviously that's uh that's an uh, a card but no, people are not tailoring clash decks with a lot of opt cards they're just mm. designing the deck to reliably pull sevens and eights off the top is clash the first true variance outside of let's say scabskin leathers no, I, I don't think it is. I, I think there's, like I kind of said before, I think there's a lot of like aspects of variance in Flesh and Blood and, and some of them are more glamorous or more interesting to talk about than others, right? So rolling your scabskin leathers, a, a pure, you know, random discard um, off the top of your deck, you know. Um, I, I think there's... Look, let's look back at Starvo, right? Did I casino? Did I did I spin the wheel and get my my three elements to activate my Starvo ability to start the turn? Right? There's there's been these kind of aspects of variance, but I think Clash. What what Clash is to me is a aspect that brings in variance to the game, but it brings it in under tension because both players get to get to get to participate in the moment of variance. 
and there's a there's an outcome to it and i think that is a very interesting way to bring variance into the game where you involve both players because a lot of, a lot of time the variance has been or any given piece of variance is just one-sided this is this is two-sided right you get both aspects and it brings yeah it brings it variance under tension which i think is a great game design piece because you get to you get to have this interaction which you don't often get to do with variance so i i think it's it is the most unique form of variance that we've seen introduced to the game um and i i think it's i think it's a good one so that now kind of goes to the question of does flesh and blood need more variance and my argument for yes revolves around being more appealing to the players who are not necessarily up for the massive grind but still want to feel the success of you know having big moments or winning smaller little little moments and that to me is partly partially why a lot of players left a game like hearthstone for something that's more secure and reliable like flesh and blood but at the same time there's a lot of players who flock to hearthstone because they want to be able to say i'm i'm screwed here but i have an an oh shit button that i can press to basically just say screw it like you said pick up 52 just throw the the cards in the air and maybe something lands in my favor like it's it's that kind of contingency plan that allows for players who might be not necessarily pros but be able to have big moments and big swings to beat a pro even in the microcosm of one turn sequence you know does it need more of that yes i i think I think it has needed more, and I think we are starting to get that. I, I, I agree with you. Like, in any given event, um, a player who is not as good as the player sitting across the table from them because, you know, they're one of the best players in the world should be able to win that game still, should have a chance to win that game. Should it be an equal chance? No, I don't think so, right? I think, you know, the better, more prepared player should should have the, the, the upper hand, potentially. But matchup comes into it, and then aspects of variance. I think... Yes, the game needs more variance for those reasons. I think you want to, you know, I think it's been great to see this kind of, you know, the appeal of a low variance game and bringing players into it. And I think that's, that is a great aspect of Flesh and Blood. You don't have to completely go the other way and bring in a ton of variance. But what you, I think you want to do is bring in aspects of variance that are good for the game. And what I mean by that is I think there's bad variance. I think there's good variance. I think if you sit down in Blitz and you sit down across from, let's say, back in the day, Reiner, and they just quad intimidate your hand or they double Blood Rush Bellow into quad intimidate your hand and kill you on turn zero, I think that's kind of bad variance, honestly. I think not being able to play the game is bad variance. Clash, on the other hand, is great variance. It gets you, it lets you play the game. I think overpower is actually great variance as well you know on how is my hand lined up with block cards versus you know attack reactions you know there's a tension like if i play this overpower card and i wager with you again another great mechanic i think and i wager with you i'm wagering not only on this token on the board but i'm wagering that you don't have a block card or an attack reaction or a defense reaction that's going to be able to come down with your action card and and stop this so i think there's good variants and there's bad variants. And I think these these variance aspects that bring both players into the game to participate in the variance is what is needed more of. Um, and I think Brian, I know he's, he's, I think he talked about it in your pod as well. He talked about it when he, we interviewed him about six months ago, talking about this idea of raising the ceiling on, on variance heroes or heroes that have more variance to them, their power, their power ceiling, 
but not at the cost of removing all consistency from the game. Consistency has a place in flesh and blood. There's there's heroes, there's classes, there's formats that should have consistency, but also let's bring in some stuff that has some higher ceilings or some more variance driven to it that is fun, engaging, and enjoyable and, and balance that off so that all players can enjoy the game, not just the specific grinders who love value. You know, there's the people, there's the Timmies, there's et cetera. So yeah, I think it does. There's definitely a really delicate balance that you have to find here because you don't want to be able, you don't want to push away players who have Mm -hmm. put in so much work only to get, you know, bounced out of a tournament to go like 0-3 in a major tournament because they just got high rolled three times in a row by somebody who, hey, this is my first time playing. I'm going to go see if I can just string together this crazy run of high rolling and see what happens at the you know at the the you know at the expense of somebody like you know like yourself or like a Matt Rogers or a Tark Patel or a Yuki Lee Bender who's out there who is grinding and and doing the calculations and have all the charts you know Peter Budensik showed me his uh his his Kano chart of here's the cards you have here's where you need to be here's the odds of and like that is unreal. That to me mm-hmm. is it, it it no longer becomes variance as much as it becomes probability to a degree of this is the probability of of attaining this goal based on these variables. And that is like that needs to be rewarded. I think that that absolutely 100% needs to be rewarded. The players like the Yuki Lee Bender who are out there studying, putting in the work, just crushing it on a regular basis. Like you said, she has had one of the, the most epic years, and she deserves she deservedly uh, should have all the, the accolades and the flowers that she has earned. I would feel terrible for somebody who puts in that work to just get bounced out of a tournament because of something mm-hmm. like, oh, I just put all this, you know, I believe the term is random bullshit go, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's, I don't know if that's a Hearthstone term. I've heard that a million times, but it's like random bullshit go. And then that's how I win the tournament. I mean, I almost hit legend in Hearthstone casually with a random bullshit go deck because, mm-hmm. you know, part of it was also understanding the right timing for things, but you could just say, screw it, we're rolling the dice every time. And if you roll sixes consistently, you'll get there. Um, I-, I worry that if the game falls down that rabbit hole too much, the same players who left high variance games to find solace within the reliability of Hearthstone's mechanics, they might just pick up and leave and say, this is precisely not what yeah. I wanted. And this happened to Gwent way back when. It had Gwent's launch in like 2018 or 17 was meteoric. A lot of players left Hearthstone to go to Gwent, and then Gwent was like, oh, well, we should appeal to more players. So they added unreal amounts of variance to the game and drove everybody away. And that's what I worry about is that people get the taste of it, realize that, hey, this is being well-received, and then they fall Mm -hmm. down that rabbit hole. They go too far over the yeah, and I, I think Alexis are aware of this. So they're they're students of games. You know, James White is and and everyone on that team actually the developed team, the design team. They are students of games. You know, they are players. They understand. I think this aspect, and there is. You, you want these things to happen. You want to have some variance. You know, like you're saying, um, I look at, you know, you look at Yuki's run, right? Yuki also had to have variance on, on her side to do that. You know, no one wins an event without just, you know, some variance going their way as well, breaking their way. And it, sometimes it's not obvious, right? Sometimes it's small moments. But the best players set themselves up to 
take advantage of that, right? To be in a position of, I'm in a losing position right now, but I'm gonna play in a way that's gonna be tight. And if some things break my way, I'm gonna come back into this game. My opponent bricks their hand, they get a bit of variance on their side. I'm gonna be ready to come back into the game. That is why someone like Michael Hamilton has been so consistent. Same with Yuki, right? They're, all these players, they're just, they're consistently on top of their game so that when variance breaks, but I think what you want is you want these stories, right? And I look at, I've got one from The Calling, right? Uh, Fluke and Box, who people would, would know, you know, as, as another content creator. He played against Matt Rogers at The Calling. And, and Fluke's on Kasai and Matt's on, I think Matt was on Brute or, or Guardian. A, a hero that has a lot of uh, attacks and against a hero that maybe doesn't have a lot of attacks. And Fluke comes back, he's like, I won every clash. I beat Matt. I just beat Matt Rogers. I've never beat Matt before. I won every clash. And it's like... Those moments, right, where there's some variance and, you know, not to say that John didn't play well, but, you know, these, these moments of variance that kind of come into the game, like every couple of events, that should happen. There should be a story like that. And it should be in an interesting way with a mechanic like Clash. I, I, think that's, I think that's great for the game. You know, I think someone to have a story of, oh, I beat Michael Hamilton at this event, I, I think that's a great story to have, right? So, I mean, the calling in Queenstown was won by Darren Ying, who won mm -hmm. clashes against, as a warrior, against Koi Din, who was desperately looking to win a clash to create one gold token because he had Golden Sun in the pocket, and it came down to the last Bastion of Hope. But, I mean, if that clash was won a turn earlier or two turns earlier, if that gold was generated one turn earlier, Koi Din would... Uh, sorry, uh, Darren Ying would not have had the, um, the Rally the Rear Guard to survive at one health it, that yep. the, the, the cards wouldn't have been there in that turn cycle so ultimately you're right to do like there's certain amounts of variance that you just cannot account for but they have to be there and yeah sometimes you go on a heater like that and it makes for a story i could only imagine what was going through koi din's mind for that little period of time where you're like if i just won one of those clashes like if i won the clash two turns ago i would have been able to close out this i would have been able to make this play to like the a turn ago and he would not and Darren Ying would not have had the tools to block it and I'm the calling champion. It's crazy how these dominoes fall this way and the ripple effect of it. But at the same time it makes for great stories. Like you said, when when Fluke beats Matt, I mean I've done that. I I'm sorry, I've been on the receiving end. I've been on Matt's side. I was the guardian against the warrior and I I lost all my clashes. Like it's six of them. I either tied or lost them. It was unreal. But that's the reality of it. And I think that it does add an extra level sorry, an extra layer of appeal to the game. But I think like any cake if if it's 80% icing, mm -hmm. you it just becomes gross. And I think that the variance to me is like the icing on the cake that if it's too thin you could barely taste it but if it's too thick it becomes it becomes unpalatable agree agree and i, I think something like heavy hitters has this mechanic we're talking about clash right we're really hitting on it and people have been speaking about it a lot and people point to and say you know uh it's you know it's too far it's too much variance but then i point and go the rest of heavy hitters is a really consistent format and set and i think you've got this one mechanic you know there's a lot of skill mechanics in the set wage for instance that's a really skill driven mechanic i think on the flip side of that so i i think 
this kind of having this clash mechanic as this kind of central point this focal point of the game that's super flavorful to the set is really interesting and good for the game because it balances off the the consistency elements so i, I because we talk about it a lot doesn't mean you know we don't talk about if i went through and was like yeah if i had you know i had three hands in a row where i drew two blues if i had one hand where i drew three blues the game you know, i'd be the calling champ you know there's, there's there's just not a sexy kind of variance discussion whereas the clash one is but it's actually pretty similar a lot of the time in terms of the level of, of variance so and look the best players you talked about you know coin that situation one one clash earlier one clash win it'd be a different story and, and i completely agree the thing is is like the best players the most consistent players they keep putting themselves in that position to be able to do that you know koi will come back koi's a good player koi will will have his time again to be able to do that and i think that's the mark of the best player is that variants might not go their way on one day but it will another day and they're going to put themselves in the position to take advantage of it well you think about it if you ask them it's like hey koi would you have rather had all the variants go your way when you won the vietnam national championship or would you rather have it go your way at the calling in queenstown i think that it's an easy decision i'd rather be the national champion and and ultimately just having that under your belt he'll bounce back he was also one of the nicest people so is darren ying i mean that final was just incredibly incredibly kind kind people and um but ultimately you got to pick a winner and so only there's only one winner to be had and uh if i were to say hayden i think i'm the winner of this of this (laughs) conversation here frankly it's always cool to have you on the show especially to talk about something like uh like variants and i want to say wagering is so freaking awesome i know you mentioned it but playing this past weekend in hartford and seeing how the bet like the the spoils you know like what is at stake is equal for both players in in a static form it's a token you get it or i get it but the implications of of the value of what is up for stake is so different because if they have an agility token and you give them a, and you're wagering a second one, they might they don't care about it. But at the same time, if they don't have one, they desperately need one. Then they're enticed to block, and suddenly, if they're blocking too much, and they get the agility token, but they don't have enough resources or cards to make use of it, it is, it's so awesome. I, the the wager mechanic added so many layers of strategy when that kind of came up. I I thought that again to sort of circle back to the fact that heavy hitters is in so far for me that my favorite set of all time i think it's going to rapidly cement itself as one of the benchmarks for limited for new mechanics being introduced for cool new heroes for flavor etc and um i i don't think a lot of people heard this but at the lss tour that we got to do at the celebrational james was mentioning that as cool as this set is, the follow-up set is, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's as close to verbatim. The follow-up set is his favorite set, and it's and he considers it his masterpiece. And that is a very intriguing thing to think about because the 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 bar has been set high now. Yeah. All right, Hayden Dale, you legend. Anything else you want to add before I kick you out of here? No, thanks for having me on. It's good to. This is a a conversation that I think is uh, is close to me. It's a very interesting conversation. So thanks for for thinking of me for having it. You're the one. I, the first person that pops into my mind definitely um, was you, and I enjoy having you on the show because you're just very well 
you're well versed, you're well experienced, but you're also very articulate, and it's awesome to have you on. So Hayden Dale of Arsenal Pass, a multiple champion of various degrees. Just I don't even want to name them because I'm gonna cry in a corner because my my claim to fame, winning a armory, an armory draft that had, I think it had Isaac Crut, Sean Dollywall, Aaron Shantz. Oh my God, who else was in there? Matt Dilks was in that one. It was like this murderer's row armory throwaway draft of Uprising, and I won a cold foil ember blade going 3-0. That, that to me, is the greatest achievement of my life, was winning that armory. And that's fine. Take it. I'll, I'll absolutely take it. Uh, before we say our goodbyes, I do want to say that there is still the Tier 3 Patreon Go Again segment. I'm locking you in. You can't say anything about it. I'm going to ask questions to Hayden Dale, things like, uh, hey, what class needs the most work? What is uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? And what is better, American football or hockey? I'm going to ask him all these questions and more. So if you want to, you can go to patreon.com slash instant speed, become a tier three Patreon supporter, and we'll have an extra little rapid fire conversation. Learn all the ins and outs of Hayden Dale including what song I'll be singing at his wedding. I will give you all this information. And for everybody else, I do want to say thank you to our sponsors, of course, to The Realm Games. Go to therealmgamingnetwork.com. Use the code INSTANT5 to get 5% off. But also, I promise you, every episode, I'm giving away $10 of store credit. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in the comments of this video, and you're going to tell me, say, Flake, here is my craziest variant story. Give me your variant story, and I will pick one of you to win $10. Because earlier today, we said that Kafgar, who uh, told us that Kasai's his favorite new hero from Heavy Hitters, won $10. And we're waiting for Kafgar to email me at instantspeedpodcast.gmail.com. All right. Friends. Lovers, strangers, everyone in between, thank you so much for listening to the Instant Speed Podcast. Don't forget, you're not losing if you're learning. We'll catch you next week on ISP. Whoa.